Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 46, 1985's Silver Bullet and the cinematic TV and film adaptations of Stephen King, featuring werewolves, psychics, vampires, clowns, pets, pet cemeteries, rats, good kids, evil kids, evil cars, evil laundry presses, New England drawls, working class heroes, crazy writers, crazy fans, and Gary Busey. Jacob. Yes? Come on, Rebel! Bust him up! Bust his chops! Oh, that hurts my parts! Under the outdoor with the steamboats, ancient goblins and wallows, come at the grand line making a sound. The smell of death is all around. And at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares, nobody knows. I don't wanna be buried in a pet cemetery. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to go to Castle Rock? Yes. Or Dairy. Yeah. Maine in general, really. Where we're all going to just, you know, affect the worst accents that you've ever heard. From Fred Gwynn to Tim Daly, they all trot it out and it all fails miserably, <laughs> but it's fucking hilarious the whole time. <laughs> what is uh, dead is better. Well, then, like, Lithgow basically just dumps it for the remake. Like, he's like, I'm not. I'm not doing I'm not, that. I will not be doing that. Or maybe he just knew that he could never reach, like, Herman Munster's intensity with the main accent. Well, it's like the first time I saw a Graveyard Shift, like Stephen Mocked is the bad guy, like owner of the cotton mill. And I was like, is he from Romania? My friend was like, no, that's just a fucking really bad Maine accent. Like, it's so thick, but it sounds European almost, like Eastern European. Yeah, it's just like he's out in the sticks, so he talks funny. Yeah, and it's real fucking weird. So, spine number 46 this week is Silver Bullet. And Martin, you picked this one, and why don't you explain why? Because, like, I love this movie, but it wasn't the first choice I probably would have came up with if we were going to use it as a jumping-off point to talk about Stephen King movies. Yeah, I mean, I this is a secret handshake with me and, and many groups of, of friends like through my life. Like, my brother and I saw it um, when we were growing up, and we both... Love Gary Busey from Point Break, and I think that next to Point Break, this is one of his best performances. Like, it's very Busey, very funny, very weird, but also, like, he's so charming in this movie. Like, like that one moment where they're having dinner, he's saying goodbye sober. He's like, goodbye, Janie. And he's just like, you can see it's Busey being Busey. So that's a big part of why I picked it. That's my love of him. Another one was at a friend in college, um, Adam Callahan, and he actually was working on a... Um, 
a rotoscoped like scene from this for a film class. It was like the the best scene in the movie, which I agree is them all leaving the bar to go hunt the werewolf. And it's that amazing, like kind of magic hour sunset. And it's that really Stephen King, small town feel. Um, and then it's a movie that I, if you've been my friend and you haven't seen it, I'm going to show it to you. Like I had some friends at Halloween a couple years ago. They had, I've never seen it. It's like, cool. We're watching it. Other had a friend, our friend Daniel come visit. He'd never seen it. I showed it to him. It's one of those things that I have to show to friends of mine. And I think another reason kind of to kind of sum it up is that it's one of the most King movies because like it was a novella first with amazing art by Bernie Wrightson, but him writing the screenplay sometimes with like, obviously Maxim Overdrive redirected as well, or other sometimes T projects like Lazy story don't work as well with him at the computer trying to write a script. This one feels like you're living in a Stephen King book. It has the pacing of a King book. Um, it has all the cheesiness just on full display. Um, but also I think this works as a good monster movie and kind of that final, that almost that fright night, like monster next door kind of like eighties teen horror movie. Yeah. This was like an entry drug. Yeah. Uh, movie from me early on. <clears throat> Because I saw it, gosh, I don't think I saw the unedited version of this movie until probably 10 viewings in because I watched it on like TNT's like Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs or TBS or one of those just afternoon matinee horror shows they would do in like October or whatever. So like when I revisited it for this recording, I'd forgotten how fucking gory it was because like- the TV cut of it that excises a bunch of that is what was stuck in my head. And even without like all the gore intact, this movie still fucking rips. Like it's just a good monster movie. The werewolf's awesome. The cast is like uniformly ridiculous. Yeah. Like having, you know, Everybody from like Corey Haim to Gary Busey to Bill Smitrovich. Yeah. Terry O'Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as like the town sheriff Everett. Yeah. So, I mean, like it's, it's an incredible assemblage of actors here, right in kind of this weird zone for them to where you can tell they're still like genre dudes, you know? Um, but I mean, revisiting this with all the gore intact, like, that first decapitation oh. where he rips that guy's head off, I was like, oh, shit, that's right. This movie's bloody as fuck if you watch the right version. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it starts out, and it goes hard from the beginning, and it has, like, a lot of King stories and adaptations, like a really weird um, narration um, and voiceover. And this is one of the weirdest ones, I think, because of the ending. Like, where she's like, I couldn't all, he's like, I love you. I love you too, Marty. I couldn't always say it. But I can now. I love you, Marty. Good night. What? Yeah. Like, it's so weird. It's the weirdest part of this is because she narrates it like it's almost like a goodbye note after Marty dies. Like, it, her remembering him in, like, a eulogy almost. Well, and, it, you know, it. what's cool to think, obviously, to look at this through the lens of a King, ad, King adaptation or King movie is just, like, as we've talked about with people like Michael Mann there's, or James Cameron, there are certain things he likes, you know? And one of those is, like, coming-of-age stories small town, family dynamics. And that definitely does have one of the big things in his stories is a sense of an adult looking back at like the nostalgia of 
nostalgically towards their youth. You Stand know? by Me would come out what the next year and is exactly that. I think it might be the same year. I think they're uh, okay. or, or, or year before. I think you're right, eighty six. Um, but you know, I even rewatched. Um, you know, besides Silver Bullet, we're kind of just we both branched out quite a bit to whether either fill in gaps or stuff we hadn't seen or kind of you know refresh and yeah, like I'd never seen Storm of the Century before and really really like that one. I also took this as a opportunity to finally watch the newer version of The Stand that Josh Boone did. Not as good. No, it's um you know, and I think a lot of the stuff that I rewatched that I like the most is the 80s and 90s stuff. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like the aughts into present day. Um, I like the first It, um, the, the Muschietti one. I hated It Chapter 2 with like a burning passion. It's horrible. I was in the theater. I was like, did I come to the wrong movie? Like I was surprised. I'm like, how could you fuck this up? And they just completely shit the bed on it. Um, just call me Angel in the Morning. <laughs> it is... Wouldn't it, it was just that's a rough one, and but I was noticing I watched Hearts of Atlantis last night, which mm-hmm. I hadn't seen um, since the theater with friends. It came out with a junior, we were in juniors in high school, and we were talking kind of off mic that there's these eras of his stuff, and that was definitely the prestige era, right? Of right, that's the, the tail end of it, yeah, because and, and you have this at the kind of end of it, and a lot of it doesn't work, and it's trying to kind of hit beats from Shawshank and. From Green other, Mile. Green Mile of this kind of magical person entering your life and and changing it. Um, What's the name of the story that one's adapting? Is it Low Men in Yellow Jackets? Low Men in Yellow Coats, okay, I think. That, yeah. And w- what's cool is like what I did like, and I think that, because Scott Hicks fucking directed it, and William Goldman wrote the screenplay. I yeah. mean, and it's like you have like the director of Shine and the fucking screenwriter of Misery, one of the best King adaptations. Oh, it was supposed to be an awards play. It just didn't really catch. No, and it, I think the problem is just the story's not that good. Um, it's not King's best story. It's him running through the motions, a lot of other stuff. But what the film, I think, captures is that magical the days of Atlantis, I think, that, you know, um, Anthony Hopkins' character talks about of, of youth. Sure. I, you feel that in Silver Bullet, I think, as well. Well, let's talk about the eras that we kind of ran through off Mike, because I do think that you can divide uh, King's filmography, like, into very distinct subsections, beginning with Carrie in 1976, the first adaptation of his first book from Brian De Palma, literally kicks off a string of movies from 76 through 83 that includes uh, De Palma, Stanley Kubrick, um, Carpenter, Carpenter, Cronenberg, Romero. These are the guys who are firing these things off. It's the auteur period with the guy uh, smack dab in the middle who makes Cujo. Louis Teague. Louis Teague. He, uh, he's the one who is actually kind of going to end up being the signifier of where King's filmography goes next. But what was interesting about it is that if you look at that roster of just absolute like murderers in the director's chair, it kind of told you just how important his early books really were to like our culture. Like they penetrated the zeitgeist to where like, our most talented filmmakers were the ones taking cracks at this. Like in Jason Zineman's shock value, uh, De Palma talks about how he wanted Carrie to be his jaws. Like he saw it as the same formula 
that Steven Spielberg had just done is basically take a low pulp novel and elevate it, make it into this really huge blockbuster film that's just going to make him all kinds of bank and allow him to do whatever he wants for the rest of his career. And he was actually disappointed that Carrie didn't reach the same level of like box office heights that Jaws did. It, regardless of the fact that it was still a huge fucking hit. Yeah, and it's still culturally not as significant as Jaws maybe, but like it is very... It's one of the King properties that's been re- remade the most, you know, between the uh, the original 76 and then you have the early 2000s. I believe Brian Fuller wrote that one. I think so. Um, and oh, then you yeah. have the one... That was the TV movie with Angela Bettis. Exactly, right? yeah. And the one with Chloe Moretz is like 2013 or something. Yeah, and that's Kimberly Pierce, yeah. you know, who did Boys Don't Cry. And you have fucking uh, Julianne Moore taking over the role that won an Academy Award for a woman, a performer who fucking frankly thought the entirety of Carrie was a joke and beneath her. Well, and she, but Piper Laurie just comes in hot in that. Oh yeah. For a person who didn't believe in the project, she, um, what's that line that, um, and I felt his hands on me. Like when she's telling the stories of like losing her virginity and shit like that. And it's so, and I liked it. Like she is amazing in that movie. Yeah, she's practically vibrating. Well, the and Sissy time. Spacek is just phenomenal. It was so cool to see her come back for Castle Rock, the right. show, which is the best episode of her with Alzheimer's kind of popping in and out of time. Oh is man, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing. incredible. That show overall, I don't think totally works, but the stuff in it that works is really, really good. Season two made the mistake of doing the whole prequel thing for Annie Wilkes. Big mistake. One was cool because it was this like, almost like we took all the King elements and characters you like, mixed them up in a bag and then made our own story with it while keeping people like Alan Pangborn, who's this like through line for Castle Rock through numerous books. It felt like they were trying to do the Hannibal version of Stephen King. Yep. And they Uh almost get there. I mean, because you also have Andre Holland as your lead. And he's really, really good in Scott Glenn is Alan Pangborn. And he's incredible. Again, that episode between him and Sissy Spacek where it's about him caring for her while she slips further and further into dementia is like ridiculous when they drop that max richter score at the oh, end nope don't even so I'm, good don't even bring it up dude that fucked me up so bad but back to the early days of king is that like you know you're jumping from De palma to toby hooper who makes the first uh king miniseries which would be a huge defining factor in the rest of his work as yep. well and what a salem's lot <laughs> and frankly i mean for my money salem's lot is still the best tv movie that's ever been made out of king's work like hooper makes a Toby Hooper film. Cause that's the other thing that really defines that early run of movies is that they took King's work and they made their films with it. Like Carrie is a Brian De Palma film. I mean, for good or ill in King's eyes, obviously with uh, Stanley Kubrick's the shining, which he famously hated because yep. he completely stripped it of what made it's such a personal work to King is him really working through his alcoholism and beating his kids, frankly. Yeah. His real relationship with his father. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like really. So like, you get why he didn't like the, the, the movie, but we watch the movie now. And also like, it's fair to say that when the shining first came out, it wasn't a huge hit. Like a lot of people didn't know what to do with it. 
Like it was lukewarm at the box office and everything. And it wasn't until it was reclaimed like through years of just horror history, frankly, and historians and cinephiles being like, no, the Shining's like one of the greatest horror films ever made. And it has the great Jack Nicholson performance in it. But like they made like Kubrick made that into a, a Stanley Kubrick movie, you know, and the same with like Cronenberg making the dead zone, like all of a sudden, you know, Castle Rock is Canada, you know, like it's so cold it's so still and eerie. Walking feels like one step removed from like any of the other Cronenberg protagonists, just really chilly and kind of aloof the entire time. And it has an amazing villain in Martin Sheen, you know, but he oh. makes this into a Cronenberg movie about how, you know, a man is haunted by his own imagination. That becomes a recurring theme is like, and me watching a bunch of these movies like back to back to back, like I wondered how many of these works are actually about the fact that Stephen King kind of hates his own imagination. Like I watched the dark half too from George Romero, which was like 93, yeah. I want to say, but that's another movie about a guy basically being like, is this dark part of myself that basically spits out all of this horrible shit and makes me rich? Is that good? Or should I kill that? Well, you know, and it, it's almost like how many times you have a main character who just is a writer. I mean, it's just this recurring right. thing. They say write what you know, but it's like hilarious sometimes. And it's like from The Shining to, you know, the dark half to how um, he is. A, Stephen King himself is a character by the end of the Dark Tower. Yeah. When I, I didn't know that when I read the series, I came to it kind of late. And when I was in it's book six, or I think uh, Songs of Susanna, where he shows up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy shit, you're really going there. And because that was and that was also him. I it was crazy the idea that the Crimson King wanted him dead, so sent that van to hit him in 1999. Because, because he was connected to he was basically connected to that land and the Crimson King's like plots and by shedding light on it by writing the books, which is kind of awesome too. Um it I mean, it's awesome, but it also, like, say if, like, Stephen King had turned out to be MAGA one day, like, we would probably look at that moment as being, like, his QAnon, like, unlocking of, his, like, his own brain of being, like, and then I realized it was the mystical forces who were coming down on me and America make make America great again. You're like, uh, no, sir. Well, that's a really interesting part of King, you know, and we can get back to the next, the next phase here, um, but... And I follow him on social media, and I'm a, you know a constant reader. I think we both are. Especially, I mean, all his new stuff I've been keeping up pretty pretty well on too. And you know, I I, I really like that he and I are aligned uh, politically. It makes me loving him a whole lot easier. He's like your dad on Facebook. Oh yeah. Only he does it on Twitter, to, and he's really good at it, frankly. But he just fires off like the angriest "I hate Donald Trump" memes. Oh, it's it's wonderful, and but. One of my, I was, I should have looked it up before uh, the quote, but the idea of the, um, I believe it's in the afterward to eleven twenty two sixty three, and it really connects to what you're talking about as for a guy who has this wild imagination that can run away in his more, you know, his sober older years that he's, I feel like he's much more obviously in control and in touch with himself. He says, well, because he's become one, I'm sorry, you uh, complete the quote, but I was going to say he's become one of those guys Two, that's not just sober, but, like, 
he gave up booze, then he gave up cigarettes, and then he gave up caffeine, and then he gave up meat, and then he gave up processed sugar. He just became almost addi- – his addictive personality became addicted to cutting stuff out of his diet. Well, and it's – I'm glad because I hope he's around forever. Oh, yeah. You know, but he – there's this um, – in the afterward, and it's just King speaking, and he said, people ask me, do I think – um, there was a huge conspiracy behind the assassination of JFK because the book really gets into like the twisty turny. Like he thinks, oh, if I just kill, you know, Jake thinks if I just kill um, Lee Harvey Oswald, I'll be over. Then he realizes, wait, you're talking about eleven twenty two sixty three. Yeah, yeah. If there's if there's more um, behind it, then like I can't just kill him because it's still going to happen. If I really want to stop this, right? And I love that King in the afterward says this is a work of fiction. And I think, I do believe that it was just one asshole with a gun. And what I like is that he comes through, he's like, this is all a story. My true belief is that humanity is where it's not huge conspiracies, it's not monsters. And I think a lot of times, that's a theme throughout his books, is when you peel away everything, the, the evil is just the, the darkness of the human heart, of like one person. You know, like you think about it, it's just, you know, Pennywise's representational of the evil in Derry, right? The people who live in that town um, and the adults and the abusers, the abusive parents and the just abusive adults, the bullies. Well, the dead zone's about that too. It literally takes the idea of like, what if you made the protagonist of your film or story and in the end, he's the shooter? You know, like what yep. does that mean? Yeah, because he's, and he's just seen the possible future, you know? And like, obviously everyone is compared Stilson to Donald Trump and it's very, very close. I mean, in hindsight of just like this complete populist, you know, totalitarian, scary guy who shouldn't have access to the the football. But it's also one degree removed from Trump in the same way that like King writing himself in the, the, the dark tower, if he leaned the other way, it would be like one degree away from QAnon. It's the same thing with like, uh, the, the protagonist of the dead zone, Johnny, like he's with the only reason we're on his side is that we know he's psychic. If you looked at from like an outsider's point of view of a guy being like, I was psychic and I heard Greg Stilson would lead us to nuclear war. So I shot him. They'd be like, that motherfucker is Travis Bickle. Get away from me. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. It's about the perspective, right? Perspective of us as the audience, but also like just King and how he views and, you know, it's also, I think it's no accident. His name is John Smith. Right. He's supposed to be this like almost, the person you'll, you'll talk about yeah. in the in the paper on Monday. You know? Exactly. And it's like, John Smith, what? He's just this kind of blank, you know? And I think Walken is great in that. You know, the ice, it's going to break. It's an amazing performance yeah. in, a, in a very... I, I have warmed to it more and more mm. as I've gotten older. I still consider it like bottom tier Cronenberg, but even bottom tier Cronenberg is like better than 95% of the stuff you'll ever watch. So who cares? Now, one of the cool things I think that helps you kind of navigate King's filmography is that you can find the endpoints in like these movements, let's say, and it's almost always when the material runs out mm. because Christine is basically the last film in the quote unquote, like kind of auteur driven, like early run. And Carpenter didn't adapt the book. The book wasn't even done when yeah. he started making that movie. And he made it basically as a job 
that he needed to rebound after the thing flopped so hard in, in theaters that he just take took it to basically stay employed and lick his wounds. And he adapted more or less like an outline mm-hmm. of what it is. And what's crazy about it is Christine's one of the best fucking adaptations, like easily top five, maybe top three in the, the huge canon of Stephen King cinema. Well, yeah, I, I agree because I it's you were talking earlier about, or you're saying that there's these absolute superstar directors of the horror community adapting the most famous horror author of all time or the most, maybe the most famous author of our lifetime period in terms of popular, you know, but there are certain people who I think are, they just get his sensibility and they align with it really well. And I think that Carpenter was one of those people like Cronenberg, I think pulls away. It pulls it away from the normal King universe. It's very much a Cronenberg film while this is a Carpenter film, it also feels very King. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really... Yeah. And I think there are two... Right down to the casting. The the, the casting... Well, And also, like, I'm going to use a word that's one of your favorite words, but I think with King, it's texture. I really, really yeah. think that... I was thinking why I love King so much and, like, why I keep coming back. And it's texture. It's the things that he... It's the worlds he creates. It's garages. It's like old storefronts, the old men out front smoking and talking. It's broken down bars, people having conversations. It's going to the drive-in to the late show on a, on a warm night in Salem's Lot. It's all these like Americana, Norman Rockwell um, kind of images. And I think that to get the director of Halloween who understood the horror of mythic Americana with like one of his first films, he's the perfect person to do Christine. Well, and we were texting back and forth while we watched a bunch of these too, is that one of the cool things to pick out are the different interpretations of King's mane, like yes. his blue collar mane, because like Christine, to your point, feels like it takes place right down the block from Halloween. It's, it's supposed to be Cleveland. Sunny, yeah, but it feels yeah. like sunny suburban California Absolutely. where all of the John Carpenter movies take place. Again, like, Cronenberg's take on Castle Rock is just Canada. You know, he, the brood could be happening next door and it would feel <laughs> the same, you know? Um, and then De Palma is, is like, he's not even, his is one of the most interesting because it's the first and it's not bound to any kind of real expectation, yeah. let's say. But De Palma's just feels like a De Palma movie. It feels like it's just play, taking place at an L.A. high school. It's all sun-baked yeah. and weird. And then you get to, that's what makes all of the sequences in Margaret White's house like so harrowing and weird and off-putting is because like they feel like they're taking place in almost an entirely different movie. Like that this little cave of like religious zealotry could even exist in this suburban sunny you know landscape is is pretty ridiculous yeah and that's i i like that idea that they're that king while he's so specific in his worlds it is a place for like creators to play you know i think that there's still room for you're saying interpretation outside of the shining he's rarely precious about his stuff well he's also known for being a really generous artist. Like he's one of the first people he loves commenting on up and coming authors and putting, you know, the, you know, he's the one who famously our, our boy, Clive Barker. Yeah. I've seen the face next generation of horror and it's Clive Barker. It's like the new face of horror. 
like he loves helping the next generation. And from what everything I've read about films being, especially in his older age, like he's so positive and supportive. He's just like your cool uncle or grandpa. who's like, Oh, you're making my movie. That's more money for me. Like he's just super straightforward about it. Even dark tower, which is one of the worst adaptations of all time. Um, of anything, of anything like he famously, oh, not famously sent a message to the director of you remember the face of your father. It's like, that's the nice thing you can say for the shittiest fucking, maybe one of the worst adaptations of anything King has ever done. What a bummer that movie is too. It fucking sucks. Well, and you, when you found out when I was like, Oh wait, Idris Elba is fucking Roland. Yes. McConaughey is, is, the man, is, in black. is man in black. Yes. And now they're finally now, Hopefully, knock on every piece of wood in this house, Flanagan, our dude, is doing Dark Tower, which for any minor fan of King, this is a big fucking deal. Well, this and the, the thing is, is after Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass, <laughs> like, but particularly Haunting of Hill House, the first miniseries, is the most King-like because it's essentially just his adaptation of it without being it itself. But, like, the jumping timelines, the jumping to different environments and parts of America and and the world and stuff, like, he's so suited for the epic nature that still remains really uh, intimate. Like, Flanagan's perfect for Dark Tower. The macro and the micro, too, you know, of the the really uh, complicated mythology, but the ability to also find the, the humanity, right? You know, between the quartet um, in but that. You, you, like, think about how amazing all the New York sequences in drawing of the... Not drawing of the three... Um, Wait, yeah, drawing yeah, of the yeah, three the second one, yeah. are going to be when he has to go find Eddie and stuff. When he's butt-fucking-naked. Yeah, and he has uh, to do the shootout <laughs> with the mobsters and shit. That's my favorite scene in the whole series. It's so good. Or when he's smuggling the, the drugs on the plane. Like, those feel like they're tailor-made oh. for Flanagan to adapt. Well, and it's funny, because, like, when they interviewed J.J. and, like, Damon Lindelof, like, they're, what's your biggest inspiration for Lost? They're, like, the Dark Tower. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, duh, all the flashback stuff of, like, who you were that got you here, you know? And with Flanagan, it works better because it's so much more contained. Um, but um, moving on to... Well, before we move on to the next section, um, I think Cujo, though, really out of this group, because that's also... That's 83. Well, um, let's use that as a jumping-off point okay. because Louis Teague is the connective tissue that unifies the first kind of auteur-driven run with what I've playfully labeled the Coke Nose 80s. Yeah. Because he directs not... Just Cujo with Jan de Bont, of all people. Oh, what a gorgeous movie. Shooting this killer dog film, which I still don't love, but like I, I've warmed to even more. But yeah, to your point, like looks fucking incredible. Like there's no reason why Cujo should look that good. But also Cujo is one of the great kind of representations of the peop- the, the different kinds of adaptation. Because like, Kubrick obviously famously changes The Shining and makes it a Stanley Kubrick movie, cuts out most of the alcoholism and abuse stuff and just makes it a straight up like abstract ghost story. Where like Cujo is pretty word for word the book, like right down to all of like the weird melodrama that populates the majority of this novel that King doesn't even himself remember writing because of all the booze and cocaine that he was on at the time. But like it keeps all of the melodrama, like the, the, the cheating wife, the, 
the guy, the ad man, like having the, the blow up at the cereal company. And then like a killer dog just like kind of comes in through the back doggy door. You know, like that's it. It doesn't become a killer dog movie until about really halfway through. And then you also have all of the, the car mechanic like beating his wife and that shit. Like, but that's the thing is like the straight adaptations reveal that King's work and you elaborate on this for a piece that's going to be hitting the website too, is that like King's work isn't just about the horror. Like he almost likes these old, like our town style melodramas where like the demons or the killer or the, the evil dog or whatever, like it backdoors in and just invades these people's like lives and the, the everyday problems that they're dealing with. Yeah, because King is, I mean, I do, one of the reasons I think I do love his stuff is that it is the worlds he creates, and it's not, he doesn't create the most, like, complex horror mythologies compared to, besides Dark Tower, which is more sci-fi, that kind of complexity, but you think about Clive Barker, and Clive Barker has this really intricate, like, multi-layered stuff with, like, the Cenobites and a lot of his horror, right? King is, it's the people first, it's the town first, and it's, you know, like you said earlier with Jaws, you know, kicking to De Palma, it's like... Here is this lived-in town, and then a monster arrives, and well, or or it comes from within the the family, and but he he really you could tell. That's why I think he could so easily pivot to non horror, because all he has to do is take the monster out. Like you think about like Dolores Claiborne, you know, like it Silver is, Bullet, Silver, you know, you could take the werewolf out of the movie, you know, and it's about a kid dealing with being, you know. Um, being handicapped, disabled. disabled, you know, and um, uh, having a drunk uncle who he's trying to have a relationship with. Growing mom, up with a sister who doesn't like him, stumbling on infidelities randomly happening in his town. Yep. Um, you know, getting into it with the local priest who's trying to like save his soul, but is really a werewolf. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's could... where the weird shit comes in is that all of a sudden it's like a werewolf movie, but it, does the interesting thing of retaining the structure of that original novella and the Bernie Wrightson like art that went along with it is that it was because the original novella was cycle of the werewolf. Yeah. And each chapter, if, if I'm recalling correctly is a month on the calendar. So you have yes. January, it's this murder, February. It's like a, a Valentine's theme murder, yada, yada, yada. Cause I remember February being the one where he tears the woman's face off who's got pregnant and is like yes. taking the pills to kill her baby. I used to sneak into the, the adult section of the library Dude. and open that. My parents wouldn't let me check it out, but I would like when they were in someplace else, I would go look at the pictures real quick. Well, that's the other thing that the, the movie captures from the book. And I didn't think about it until I watched this unedited version. And again, was commenting on all the gore is like, the rights and art is oh. mainly just the werewolf coming in and trashing people's faces. I um actually got to hang out with Bernie Wrightson's son um on a oh wow a film shoot and the nice guy he's a he's a, a filmmaker as well um but I ended up just talking to his dad talking to him about his dad and about Swamp Thing and about Cycle yeah. the Werewolf and he's the coolest guy but yeah no I and I think that I think because I think Wrightson also did Creep Show he, he did he, some work he did, on he, it yeah. on, well he did the 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 um, comic adaptation I believe right. yeah um but yeah no I mean these you think about some of his stuff that actually, I mean, there is a somewhat supernatural feeling 
to stand by me still, you know, underneath it all of a, a mystical sense. Sure. But it is, it is still like a straight up coming of age story without a monster. Yeah. And that's the thing is, again, it's when we start to run out of material because like yeah. in this second phase, it really begins with Children of the Corn, Firestarter from our boy Mark L. Lester, Cat's Eye, where Louis Teague comes back and directs that again, Silver Bullet, our movie of the week with Dan Atias, who would go on to mostly direct like a lot of TV and mm-hmm. HBO type stuff, Maximum Overdrive, which is this is where the Coke Knows 80s era peaks for King. Oh, yeah. Because they you have direct King <laughs> high on cocaine, not just directing the movie, which by all accounts was a massive shit show, but also being the face of those fucking insane trailers. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Yeah. What? Definitely, obviously high out of his fucking mind. But like. This movie's insane because, again, it has this insane, like, fucking cast with a crazy-ass premise of trucks being taken over by aliens or something and coming alive yeah. and killing people all while ACDC plays. Sure, why not? Well, and that was the because most of those were produced by Dino, De Laurentiis. Like, they had this yeah. union where I think Dino was one of those people— who would buy a property or buy a, the rights to something and then like milk it for all it's worth. Well, you have that twice in his career. Dino De Laurentiis was a big one on that because he does uh, Silver Bullet as well. Yeah. But again, you watch the material run out because after Maximum Overdrive, it's Stand By Me, pretty much the first adaptation that doesn't have any horror in it yeah. whatsoever. So you've kind of run out of horror novels at that point, and they're actually trying to take his work in a different direction. And then you have a return to Salem's Lot, which is just Larry Cohen making shit up as a sequel oh. to uh, Salem's Lot. I actually kind of like this movie. It's super idiosyncratic and fucking weird, and plus it also has uh, Sam Fuller as a vampire hunter in it, so you can't go completely wrong. But yeah, it's, it's fucking weird and yeah. doesn't fit with the rest of this filmography. And then the last one is The Running Man and the first adaptation of a Richard Bachman book after Bachman was pretty much outed as being an alternate pseudonym for Stephen King to write under, to write stuff that almost didn't quite fit what he was known for as the king of horror. Well, I don't know. I I mean, I'd love to do more research about the um, now they advertise that film as a Stephen King thing because they're trying to like now that he's hot again or really hot. But I don't know if they pushed it too hard because you got Arnold as your lead. Like, do you also need Stephen King? Or are you going to confuse people, right? Because you wouldn't you rather be like, here's this Arnold sci-fi action thing the same year as Predator versus like, wait, it's a Stephen King movie? Especially because the last ones weren't that maybe as well received. Because I don't think Maximum Overdrive was that well received critically or financially. No, it didn't do well. Yeah. So maybe people were they were trying to move away from that a little bit. Well, I just think it's interesting because Bachman is basically outed in like 85 as being an alternate pseudonym for King. And then you get Running Man. It's the first time that they adapt one. His name is on it as Stephen King, not Richard Bachman. It's, it's Richard Bachman in the, the credits. Oh, is it? In the opening Bachman credits. The credits? Yeah, I'm, okay. not, I'm 99% sure, but we'll, we can check on they that. They may have changed it in later editions. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'd have to look at it too, but I swear it was. But either way, like... They made a movie that it doesn't like there's no Stephen King book. They just adapted something else, which brings me to the next uh, kind of phase of movies from him, 
which really start in 82 with Creepshow, but it's his collaborations with Richard Rubenstein, George Romero, and Laurel uh, Entertainment, the, the company that they founded together, that starts with Creepshow, which is still the best horror anthology of all time. Yeah, definitely one of them. High yeah. up there. And, like, it captures a bit of King's work that defines it. Again, we're like... You had said something to me while we were texting back and forth about how the TV miniseries is like the best fit for King's work because it allows them to be sprawling novels. And like Toby Hooper taps into that with Salem's Lot early on because that one's like over three hours long Mm -hmm. and aired over two nights, even though there's a two hour cut that you can find too that aired overseas, like in actual movie theaters and that you can find prints of and stuff to play if you yeah, ever wanted to. I but, would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so would I. But the other thing that uh, Kings that defines King's work is the short story. Yeah. And the collections of stuff like night, night shift, skeleton crew, nightmares and dreamscapes, like the, the classic anthologies uh, of his short work and then, like, Creepshow is tapping into that and something that would define his work going forward is, even in the cinematic realm, is because there are so many short films that are just adapted from his work. Starting in the early 80s when you have the Night Shift collection yep. of short films, too. And then there's also, like, just one-off independent things just running. There's a Children of the Corn one in the mid-80s. Like, there's a bunch, like, scattered through. But once the Dollar Baby series comes out, like, good. Like, there's so many adaptations of, like, like Survivor type. Like, 253. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And Kane Rose Up is two pages long. Exactly. It's about, you know, obviously shooting, you know. Um, it's not the best. He has a couple things like that, like his story, his book Rage from Richard Bachman, which he disowned and is no longer in print because it's basically about a school right. shooting. He's like, I don't want to. Well, apt you people. Know. Yep. The has, that has school ends, shooting in it too. Exactly. Yeah. Ends with a school shooting. And that one fits into a different era. But so you had De Laurentiis producing a lot of his work. And then you have Rubenstein producing a lot of his work because they do creep show together in 82. Don't really work together for five years while his movies are out, just becoming popular as fuck. And then they come back together to do creep show two in 87. And then Rubenstein produces a huge chunk of the work going forward because he does like Pet Cemetery, he originally buys the the rights to the stand because Romero was supposed to yeah. direct the three hour version, like big screen version of the stand. There's Tales from the Dark Side, which was supposed to be uh, Creep Show three, and that has Stephen King writing Cat from Hell um, for for that uh, collection, and then he produces the Golden Years. The actual stand that Mick Garris directs for TV, The Langoliers, Thinner, and The Night Flyer. Wow. Yeah, like it's a huge chunk of it. Who did, who produced um, Graveyard Shift? Is it anybody of note? Or is that more to someone took it and run? That's Paramount still. That might still be De Laurentiis. It might be. I'd have to look at the credits themselves, but that's the end of that Paramount run. Yeah, because that's one I actually like quite a bit because I think, like you were saying, the difference between short stories and like, his novel, his short stories usually have an amazing pitch. Like Graveyard Shift, it's like a couple sentences. It's like, hey, cl- cleaning out a cotton mill's basement where there are like chemically fed rats that have grown to like huge size. Done. That's a monster movie. 
versus like and how, the end monster in that one that weird bat thing is fucking awesome amazing because in the in the book in the story because it's in night shift i remember also it, brad duraf has the rat catcher basically the quints of that movie it's bananas just covered in grime doing a weird accent again like totally steals the movie i like that one that's a late night one but that actually starts the next phase of movies after the rubenstein ones in my mind which is just trash 90s yeah because you have graveyard shift you have one that's one of the most important to people of our generation and frankly king's career going forward which is the 1990 uh miniseries adaptation of it because you see that become a huge like event television yep kind of landmark which would open the door too to have rubenstein bring you know when when the stand falls through with romero and he doesn't actually direct it which ugh, the the that things we could have done together but he he still produces the stand for mcgarris and that becomes an even bigger event and is star-studded with like gary sinise and molly Ring, ringwald yeah. and it's just ruby d like it's it's amazing i remember taping it on TV and watching it a bunch of times and then having that like three cassette uh, set that like they actually put out and you could watch over and over again. But then it also led to like the Langoliers and shit coming out. So not the best. And the Tommyknockers, one of the worst. But think, listen to this list of trash 90s movies. Graveyard Shift, it sometimes they come back. Ooh. Lawnmower Man, Sleepwalkers, The Dark Half, Tommy Knockers, and The Mangler. Toby Hooper comes back to make one of the worst adaptations that I still really fucking like. So my favorite of that group is sometimes they come back and fuck off. That movie sucks. We I we've talked about this before and we had a fight. It sucks too. But That's you, my hardest take that I'll that I'll bring to this podcast is I think the 1990 version of it fucking sucks balls. I cut, <laughs> I cut you just so off. I, no, I literally just like went mute, mute for a second. Um, it's a good thing I fucking love you, dude. Um, <laughs> it's a good thing we're this the point in our relationship. Um, sometimes they come back uh, is the ultimate for me uh, texture uh, of things I like that King likes. And another thing that he likes besides what we mentioned earlier with like small towns, he loves hot rods. He loves like rock and roll culture, like uh, guys in leather jackets, greaser gre- bullies, gre- greaser bullies. I mean, they're all over his stories. They always pop up. And I remember we watched, we were doing the tales from the crypt and we saw the King of the road. You're like, that's so for you, Martin. Like that's made for you. This also, you know, my things I like, like this is all the shit that I like. Um, and it's a ridiculous movie. Um, you got Brooke Adams coming back for her second time as, you know, a character in a, a King, uh, adaptation. Um, it's almost like a TV movie. It's that it's that kind of quality. Um, Tim Matheson is your lead. Well, and you know what's really funny that I kept thinking about that while watching, and we'll get to Storm of the Century more a little bit down the line here. But like, he has stories where the lead is, um, you know, very complex, where they have Jack Torrance, you know, or uh, or other stories. I think even uh, Paul Sheldon in Misery, while he's not the villain, he still is a complex guy. Um, a lot of King complicated, all, complicated. There's a lot of his stories though, and adaptations where he literally has almost like the equivalent of like a lantern jaw hero. I mean, like Tim, like Tim in, um, what's his fucking name? 
not Tim Matheson. Uh, Tim Daly. Tim Daly. Like Tim Daly is the ultimate of that of just like a good small town guy with like no com- no complexity whatsoever. It's and the eight thousand dollars you pay me a year to be the constable. The constable here. Now you all gotta calm down now. And you know King he'll have these just like his maybe like ideal version of himself. Is like, that's what I want to look like and what I want to be like, you know. Um, but this one, yeah, Matheson is definitely that kind of milk toast kind of lead. School like, teacher. He also has a history, that Jack Torrance history of, like, he hit a student. He's kind of on on kind of, like, pins and needles about, can I keep my job? Double secret probation. Yeah, yeah. has a history of, of um, alcoholism as well. But I just like the pitch, because that was also a short story, right? I believe that's also Night Shift, of just, like, imagine you were partly to blame for the death of the bullies who killed your brother. You're a teacher now. And one by one kids are disappearing in your class and being taken by these ghosts. Like that's a great fucking pitch for a story. Um, I probably watch it maybe once a year. Um, I know I just like it a lot. And it's the kind of thing I want to write. Like I like that small town hot rod monster stuff. I love the souped up kind of evil devil car that they drive. Again, I like the, the texture. Uh, of the story sure but i think graveyard shift as well again out of that group is just kind of a banger of a little horror movie like it really works on its own merit um i love the look i love the whole design of the sets of like those those is kind of covered in muck this cavernous you know everything's wet yeah um and again stephen mocked just doing eating scenery and doing his thing now talk to me here lawnmower man and sleepwalkers where do you (sighs) fall on these i mean the best time I had watching Sleepwalkers was with you. Oh, when we got real fucked up and watched them on Halloween night. We were like, I mean, I was very drunk and that helped. And we were laughing. Like, it's a funny movie. Like, it's, it is, it is so bad. It's good at this at moments where it's like really weird. Has, I think has, it's yeah. knowingly campy. Yeah. Like, it's leaning into that very, like, plastic erotic thriller thing that was kind of popular at the time in the early nineties when they were going through it. Cause I remember weren't the VHS tapes pink for sleepwalkers. Oh, something weird. They, they did make them in different colors or whatever, but like that poster rules to the cat walking toward the house. Oh yeah. One of my favorite King posters. Really, really good. But I mean, it also has that TV movie sheen and the, the post twin peaks sheen, frankly too. Ah, uh, Yeah. You know, but I like it. It's just fucking weird. Like all the incest and rapiness and I don't know. And I, I haven't seen Lawnmower Man in so long. So I really can't speak to it. Yo, Lawnmower Man fucking rules. I loved it growing up for real. That's true trash cinema nonsense. Like, dude, come on. You have Jeff Fahey going straight up simple Jack and getting into an, like, a standoff with an escaped monkey that he thinks an escaped lab monkey that he thinks is Cybo man, his favorite <laughs> like comic book <laughs> renegade ape thing. But Cybo man is blown away by the police in a police standoff while Jeff Fahey again, dressed as simple Jack Runs in slow motion and screams, No, Cybo Man! <laughs> like, come on, dude. Then he comes back in the internet to murder people. How could you not like this movie? Well, because that's famously, like, people 
mention it as or bring it up as the furthest from the original source. Like you can't go. Well, he further. sued him. Yeah, he sued him. He got his name off the because Brett Leonard did the movie, right? Because he also yeah. did Virtuosity. Yeah, and they're very. And I love Virtuosity. Sure, um, they are very similar in that. Like, um, there's that era where we really didn't quite know what the internet was going to do yet. Yeah, you could do anything and with it because it was just like, what is this thing that Al Gore invented? We're not really sure. Exactly. With another a movie from that era that I think does all of that and well is Ghost in the, the Machine. It's Ghost in the Machine. The Net. I like the net. Um, Starring Sandra Bullock. But you've seen Ghost Machine, the Rachel Talley film. It's terrible. I love Come that. On, I love dude. that movie. Yeah. It fucking sucks. Yeah. Well, it was that era where you're like, you can travel through, you know. You can travel through a microwave if you want to. All that what shit. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And But no, I I mean, I like it not, obviously, as a King adaptation, but it's really crazy. A lot more, man. Um, What's funny, though, is that he did sue to get his name taken off. And, like, you get it. Like, the short story is just a jumping off point to make this really insane like internet murderer thing. Yeah. But it does stop dead to adapt the short story, which is just like a guy basically getting killed by a sentient lawnmower. And it's like, like there's a scene from the short story in the movie where a guy gets run over by a lawnmower. And it's just kind of like, he did sort of adapt it. He just did his own thing in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And then again, we, we run out of work here about mid nineties because you have dark half Tommy knockers and mangler. Tommy knockers is one of the last kind of significant TV miniseries made out of his work along with Langoliers, which kind of is the bullet put in the head of the Stephen King TV miniseries and possibly for good reason. Do you like the original Langoliers short story from Four Past Midnight? Uh, you know what? I, I've read it so fucking long ago. That's on my shelf at my home in Indiana. Like, I still have that collection. Could you imagine if anybody tried to adapt the library policeman? Oh, man. Do you remember that one? With the Fuck. library cop just turns out to be a pedophile, and it's a guy reminiscing. Not reminiscing, but basically looking back at the trauma caused for him when this guy basically anally raped him in the library for not returning his books on time. You don't remember this story? I remember reading this at like 13 and being like, what the fuck is going on? Like these graphic descriptions of a guy like raping like a 12 or 13 year old boy. And I'm like, Steve, you've gone off the fucking deep end, my man. Wow. Well, before we move on to the next era, which (laughs) you're going to get to, I want to ask you off of this though. What was the first King you ever read? Firestarter? Okay. I think. I, I was Carrie. In terms of I, in terms I of used finishing. his books to learn to read. Mm. Like I was reading them in like third and fourth grade when I really started to be allowed to like read quote unquote adult books. Like I was tearing through them. And Firestarter was early. The dead a lot of the early stuff, like the yeah. Dead Zone, Christine. I remember reading like super early. The Shining. Um, my mom actually subscribed me to that, like Stephen King oh, book club fuck yeah. where you would get, I'm so mad. Like this is a longer story for another podcast, but I used to have like a whole collection of Stephen King hardbacks and like first editions and whatever. And they got lost in a fire that an exchange student who was staying in my room oh. lit and burned up all of my Stephen King books and my fear street books. And like, my Clive Barker novels, my comic books, like all of my, my whole collection gone. Dude, yeah. that breaks my heart. Yeah. Seriously. 
Me too. What's your um what's your favorite king book, period? It Yeah. Yeah. Like I think that's the one or the stand. Mm. It, it, they would have to knife fight and I'd have to go back and reread them. Other one that I really, really like, uh, The Wastelands, the third oh, book in the Dark Tower so series, good. because believe it or not, the first book that I read in the Dark Tower series, because my mom, again, like she subscribed me to this thing, but she would also go to the grocery store and would buy me random like paperbacks and stuff. And she knew I liked Stephen Your mom King. fucking rules. So she just bought The Wastelands and brought it home, not knowing that it was like the third book in the series. I also didn't know because I was like, 11 or 12 or whatever. And I remember reading it on the bus on the way to school and like how it like described all these characters of Roland and, um, the woman in the wheelchair and like Eddie and like Susanna's the woman in the wheelchair. Yeah. Right. And it's like, um, and how they all knew each other and had gone through the stuff and my like little brain, even then is like, did I miss something? <laughs> did I skip? This feels like there's a whole lot of backstory that I don't know. And then they're attacked by that giant fucking mechanical bear. In oh the woods yeah. At the beginning I of the wasteland. love that shit. You, you know, we were talking about Bernie Wrightson and the, the illustrations for uh cycle of the werewolf. Yo, did you ever, the ones that I was addicted to in the library where when I started to get into the Dark Tower ones, it was, they it had was the, the big, illustrated the big versions. ones yep. that had the one-sheet illustrations that were like Gunslinger had of, it. Yeah, yep. of like scenes from the, the book and stuff. Dude, those were fucking awesome. And they had a painting of the bear chasing Eddie like up into the tree and like half of its face being torn away and it looks like Terminator bear. That shit was stuck in my brain like forever growing up. There's this really great book by Jeff Vandermeer who wrote um, uh, Annihilation and it's called Born. Uh, and it's about a giant, it's basically in this like post-apocalyptic society with a giant mechanical bear that's like even bigger than that one walking around the city. But people like jump onto it to get like supplies off his back because as he walks through, he picks up shit so it'll be like oh i need to get some more like more food oh there's some stuck in his fur that's like the whole book it's insane um but yeah my fit so what you said about the the library again i remember specifically where they are in the franklin public library right. i remember like walking in where king was next to like all the different all the other different k's the l's everything Koontz was right down the aisle yep. from him and they i remember like looking through the books and i was too young and we had a, a, a friend, a neighbor up in Wisconsin in the summer, uh, Jim Krems, who was just a voracious reader of all paperback. And he would always just like have a, like, oh, take this home. Like, here you go. Um, and I remember we would go to the, the uh, library book sale on 4th of July, Three Lakes, Wisconsin. And you go in the basement and it was all their stuff they were getting rid of. And my entire King collection is still from that book sale. Every oh, wow. year I would go and for a quarter – just pick up these like first edition kind of ripped up paperbacks, but they're well loved. And that's where I first got Salem's lot. And that's when I fell that's in love. That's your favorite. That's my right? favorite book period of all time. Like when I fell in love with King was reading that in my parents' cabin. And I was like, because that very much like what we're talking about with his small towns feels like you're living in a small town with these people. It really takes its time for the evil to get started. And again, it's not about the horror for me. Like, the vampire stuff's great, but it's also like, I'm just cool hanging and like living in 1976 fucking Maine. 
Well, that's what's great about the full three-hour-plus cut of yeah. the Toby Hooper miniseries is that he's allowed to, like, just kind of hang out in that town. He's allowed to get into, like, the writer being there. And Bonnie Hunt is the— uh, Bedelia. Bedelia, that's it. Bonnie Bedelia from Die Hard is, like, the love interest. She's and she gorgeous in, in this. James Mason as the weird, like, Renfield— Mr. Striker. Like, yeah, like, uh, Keeper— of the vampire at and like, full nebbish James Mason. He's great. I mean, it. he's like, n- like North by Northwest level of will, you know, just, but that's another one that feels distinctly like a Toby Hooper movie. Mm. Like he still is hanging out and he's such a like strange stylist and things feel a certain way. And like that scene where the kid floats back. Yep. yep. And the, the fog takes over and tries to lure his brother out of the room. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, well, I mean, it, to our conversation about adaptations, I mean, like, a lot of the imagery we have from King is from the movies. It's not from reading, right? Like, when I think King, yeah, I think of the books I love, but it's also, like, that is one of the best King shots, period, is that scene. I think yeah. a lot of people talk about, I was completely terrified by that as a kid. I was terrified that as a kid. You know, I think I actually saw that miniseries before I read the book. Um, but I mean, thing I think I for me, uh, Pennywise coming out of the drain in the TV movie when the kids in the shower because I was afraid of like the shower growing yeah. up, and it was like him just kind of stop motion like pulling the pulling the uh, the drain apart and coming through it. That's the thing is that I think the it miniseries sucks, but Tim Curry's Pennywise is iconic for a reason. Oh yeah. You know, like, he's great in it. I just wish I liked the rest of the movie. It, I think I'm unfair is why I also lean towards that one being my favorite book is because I was so revolted by, like, that adaptation because it cut half the stuff about the book that I liked out. But it also did show... The one huge gaping flaw of the book, and I, honestly, the the later movies, the the huge Tim uh, or Andy Machete yeah. adaptations, do reveal that the second half of that book is not nearly as good as the first. Yep. Well, and you also need to be able to cross cut, you know. Yeah. And, really and, well. And the fact that he's like, no, we're going to do it in two pieces, is they still had to do like they had to write new flashback scenes because it doesn't work with just having the things happen. Right. You need, it's all about how the memories it draws up, which again is pure king all the time. Yeah. The only person who's learned how to do that is Flanagan. Yeah. Like the, the fucking flashbacks and, and the impact that they have on the adult characters in Haunting of Hill House is like impeccably done. I mean, the episode where it's four shots. I mean, the way that you're going back and forth through time, yeah. you know, and it's, time is melting around you. It's like, oh, the way that like when you have memory, like, Time doesn't mean anything, you well, know? And the ghosts in that one resemble what Pennywise did possibly even better than what Pennywise did in the, the it either it uh, adaptation is that it manifested the actual fears that were haunting the individuals. Like, the you know, all of the, the addiction stuff. Yeah. Where the, the ghost is basically like the monkey on his back the entire time. Um the one where it turns out that Nell is the bent neck lady is haunted like, by herself, her yeah, own future like, death. Literally one of the most like devastating reveals I've ever seen in like any kind of like long form storytelling period. Uh, but that felt like Flanagan taking the right lessons from the stuff that he read 
and just making his own thing with it. Yeah. You know? But now what's interesting about this nineties period that we just kind of called nineties trash is at the same time, there's this active effort to reclaim King's work. And it frankly starts in 1990 with a movie that would win Academy Awards, uh, notably for Kathy Bates. And that's misery. Um, misery is like the first, I guess stand by me is technically the first, like, and same director. Yeah. Rob Reiner, Reiner, like coming in and doing like the first, like I, I'm going to do the non horror King book. Like I'm going to do the serious one. And with misery, even though misery, on the page is much more hardcore and kind of unhinged, frankly, because I mean, like in the book, she like blow torches cops and shit. Yeah. If memory serves. And she cuts his feet off. Doesn't cuts his feet off. Like it's much more extreme. We're in this like adaptation. It becomes much more of a a contained intimate chamber piece between two actors and James Conn firing on all cylinders as well. But misery to me is the one that kicks that off. Not so like officially where like stand by me felt like an early test balloon. Like, because you go misery Shawshank redemption, um, green mile, Dolores Claiborne, all the castle rock productions, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I think that, um, misery is an interesting one because it is is kind of a, a safe place between, uh, his horror more, and thriller, it, horror and thriller, but also his just his drama stuff, you know. Um, and like you said, it is I think a lot less shocking and um, and kind of insane. Uh, that was also I, I believe one of his very coked up books when he wrote it. Um, that era where he was like, I don't really remember a lot what I wrote. Um, and I actually really like that book because while it is um, very meandering as King can be. Uh, it does have the feeling of a nightmare that kind of when you are like in your dream and there's a monster in your room, but you're like feet are made of lead. It has that feeling, right? Of like, you can't quite get away. And every step he takes forward is like two steps back. And what I think the movie does, and again, to bring up William Goldman, he takes a messy book and turns it into a pretty much perfect thriller. One location script. Yeah. Like he pairs everything out to help King. He's like, here, I'm going to help you tell your story in a very succinct way with great characters. It still keeps the energy. I mean, like Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, is still one of the best adaptations of a King character. You know, the way she speaks, she doesn't get out of the cock a doody car. You know, all her mannerisms, but also all her like one-liners of these I don't like to curse kind of women. Um, and it's interesting to see her come back. I watched the Glorious Claiborne yesterday, which is one of my favorite adaptations. I think it's completely underrated. It's also the better performance. 100%. She's really nuanced in it. Her- She's really unlikable in it, though, but that's what makes it so much harder to kind of like, I guess, a tightrope to walk for her as a performer. Yeah, well, that's what's really cool about that movie. And I think, again, a, a theme of of King is family, um, family trauma being aired out and being shown to the light. And the, that whole thing is basically a mystery where the thing you don't want to look at is what our characters want to look at. Our main character, her daughter is I was molested by my father. Like that's the core of that movie is everything around it is everything Dolores did was to protect her daughter. And then it's cool because like your motivation for your character is slowly revealed. And while she's this kind of a, that great line in the story of, you know, Sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to. It's, again, one of those themes that he 
will repeat in a movie till it's kind of becomes annoying, but it works in this one because it's like, Hey, this world has never been kind to me and I have to be a bitch to get what I want and to protect myself and to protect you. And if you leave me, that's still a price I'm willing to pay to help you. And I think it all works um, because Tony Gilroy wrote the screenplay and he's great. I mean, again, yeah. took a b- pretty big book and whittled it down to a two hour and 10 minute prestige, you know, prestige they're really movie. going for it with that one. Oh. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee it plays the daughter. Yep. It's got David Strathairn as yeah. the father. Oh my god, he's incredible god. in it, and it has the same texture as the other Castle Rock productions that you know sh- include Shawshank and Green Mile and these. Like they were just trying to obviously make them elevated, for lack of a better term, and like real movies. These weren't just things that you went to the video store and rented as like one-off larks. It was trying to actually put some respect on King's name for lack of a better term. Yeah. I mean, these dramas too are very, they're they're more complicated, right? Because again, with some of these stories, you're like, you want to watch a Stephen King movie tonight? Which one? How about the one with the car? Oh, Christine. Cool. You know, or the one with the dog. Oh, Cujo. Cool. Like there's these ones you can really whittle down to a very easy pitch. And like Dolores Claiborne and these dramas are not that. Like, they're not high concept, right? They're very much prestige dramas that happen to be written by Stephen King, you know? But it's his worlds, too. And then after this period, after the one that gives us both some great trash, because, like, we haven't even really hit on Dark Half, which is one of my favorite Mm -hmm. King adaptations, and sees Romero coming back and being really, like, faithful to the book but also making it into a straight up like almost Argento inflected American giallo like all the George Stark like straight racer murders particularly the one where he kills the guy the dad from Silver Bullet oh yeah the grieving father like cuts his ponytail off and stalks him <laughs> in that that blue and red hallway that feels straight out of an Argento oh yeah movie. full on superior dead, dead deep red but then after this run they like Again, the material runs out and we're kind of in the wilderness for a while to where like we get a one off here and there, but it's mostly like really shitty TV movies and adaptations. Like, do you remember um, Rose Red? I love that movie. It's impossible to find. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I ever even watched it. You have, you know, Firestarter 2 the new like TV movie of Carrie. Yep. There was a Carrie to the rage, the rage Carrie Two. that comes a little later, but it really coincides as we were again, kind of talking off mic with his accident. When he gets hit by that van in 99, like he sort of falls off the pop culture map. They make some stuff out of his stuff, but his relevancy kind of goes away because I think everybody counted him out and thought he was dead. And that, that was that. Yeah. But then after that, you know, the 2000s are peppered with stuff like Secret Window, the remake of Salem's Lot with Rob Lowe. TV movie as well, Ooh. yeah. Remember when Stephen King in one of the strangest moments in cinematic history adapted Lars von Trier and made Kingdom Hospital? Yeah, real fucking weird. Yeah. Um, stuff like that's tossed in. Desperation. That Nightmares and Dreamscapes like TNT mm-hmm. series is in there. 
you know, it's really not until they tried to have the comeback with his first post-accident book being turned into a movie by Lawrence fucking Kasdan, of all people. Dreamcatcher. Big prestige action blockbuster. Dude. I remember watching Dreamcatcher for the first time and being like, what the fuck is going on? What went wrong here? Now, granted, the book sucks. Oh, it's bad. But, like, you could potentially turn it into a better movie. But, man, everybody's just in a different film. Morgan Freeman and his eyebrows in that movie are, like, doing a Colonel Kurtz thing. Damien Lewis's accent is not Damian quite there Lewis's yet. Damien accent is bonkers weird. Jason Lee is yelling about, you know, fuck a duck or whatever it is. And that there's the weird like mental library scenes where they actually go to the the mind palace stuff. But then worst of all is Duddits. Man, (sighs) Stephen King. Look, it's the one thing we haven't really talked about yet with, with being kind of huge fans of his work. Stephen King is your well-meaning problematic uncle. I think we've stated this before in the past. But anytime he tries to write a character, you know, lovingly or not, who has like some mental disabilities or slowness or whatever. Sometimes different races. Diff- some different uh, race stuff. But I'm mainly s- sticking with yeah. the simple Jack notion. Like Jeff Fahey and Lawnmower Man is embarrassing. Obviously, he had nothing to do with that one, but it is a glaring example on here. Um, Ezra Miller in the new stand as trash can man is woo on another planet of bizarre. Okay. You want to talk about the stand for a second before we kind of push on because I did get to watch that. Um, you didn't like it, right? No. Yeah. I see why it failed miserably at the time. It starts off strong. Dude, the first like couple episodes are really fucking good. Fucking Hamish Linklater just coming in yes. and just explaining the apocalypse to you. I was like, wait, people said this is bad? Like, what's going on? And then it just slowly goes off the rails. And, like, it's so poorly paced. The time jumps don't, like, make any fucking sense. Like, there are times where you're watching it and you're like, wait, which timeline am I on now? Because, like... They're edited in such a haphazard way that it's hard to even keep track, even as somebody because like Carrie tried to watch it with me and she'd never read the book and she was watching it and she couldn't keep up with Mm. when things are happening, where we're supposed to be, whatever. And I realized that like the only reason that I did know what was why I knew what was happening was because I'd read the book a few times and like had familiarity with the source material. If I hadn't had that, I think I would be just as lost as she was like. It sucks. Fucking Alexander uh, Skarsgård is completely wasted in that. Like, you would think him as Randall Flagg would be perfect casting, but he almost seems just completely bored in it. Nat Wolf's weird white pimp thing that he's doing. Like, it's it's a mess. It's it's messy. And it's it's kind of a weird time to be a King fan, too, because it almost reminds me of being an original Marvel fan where all of a sudden it's like really, really, really popular. And if you're a, if you're a fan, a lot of you're like, I'm not sure I like exactly what they're doing with this, but I'm glad it's getting attention. I feel like it is like the Iron Man of Stephen King movies where it's like this runaway hit. And it's like, Oh, we didn't realize he still had these legs, you know? And I think after they started just like really adapting and trying, you know, more stuff, 
putting stuff more TV shows like you know Castle Rock, like Lizzie's Story on Apple, and also a prestige. You know, um, but prestige, back to yeah. Duddits. Okay, sorry. Let's talk about Duddits. <laughs> I Duddits, like I Claudius, retard aliens. That's what's going on here, man. Steve shouldn't write this. No, it's and like you said, it's well-meaning. Um, it's very similar to Holly in the uh, the Bill Hodges trilogy, I think, where he's like, I have a great idea for a character, and she's on the spectrum, but she's also going to be a um, detective. And I'm like, cool. Are you really the guy to write this? And in that same series... Are you sure? Do you really want to do this? And in this series, you also have a his African American um, like neighbor who ends up being his, one of his like people in the finders keepers group, you know? And yeah. Um, also they have this relationship, Bill Hodges and him where they kind of do a step and fetch it routine with one another. I'm like, why are you doing this Stephen King? Why are you making it weird? He can just be the kid's friend. There's nothing else you have to do. And I'm like, just stop. It's like that Tom Segura bit when he's like, if my dad sees a black guy, shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're just gonna have two diet cokes. We're gonna close this up pretty quick. <laughs> but yeah, like during the two thousands, it's really a fallow period for the King adaptations. I think partially because he's gone and, and not as in the public eye and obviously not producing as much work or whatever. So there's probably some like, we need to respect this, yada, yada, yada. And times just moved on. But then you get to 2007 where the mist and 1408 come out and it felt like King was back all over again, particularly because of the mist, which is so fucking good. And it's Darabont, you know, you got, you got like, shooting with his shield crews. Like, so it's all fast and loose, but like, him doing the really hard Lovecraftian horror and really getting to adapt a story in a way that he hadn't before because he'd always been the prestige king guy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I like it a lot more now. Um, the black and white version is really amazing. Um, the edit they did of that, they can get it on Blu-ray. Yeah, it is is really neat. Uh, but I mean, the, the the famous ending too. That it's not in the story, but the king is like, I like that ending better. You know, I think it's absolutely brutal. Um, I love the Lovecraftian like spider monsters coming out of the mist. Um, it's again, it's a really nice pared down little thriller too. But yeah, but then we we lose touch with him again for like eight years. There's a bunch of short films. There's a bunch of stuff being optioned, and then there's some like series out there because you have Under the Dome, Haven, Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three as a mini series. But then you also have like fucking Cell. With John Cusack Ooh. and Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, it could be argued that this is also the period when most of his books in this time are terrible. Yeah. And he sells just, a shitty book. Like, he sells a bunch, but it's still just sort of like, this is bad. Do we really like Stephen King still? And maybe that's why his movies just weren't as viable anymore, because he just wasn't... He didn't have the culture by the stranglehold you know, the stranglehold like he did in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, I would agree. Cause you have, um, a lot of he was releasing. I remember were short story collections. Again, it was like, uh, like just before, just before sunset or like everything's eventual, all these like series of, uh, of short stories. And that's why you get 1408s where you get secret window and films like that, that were just pulled from, these kind of lackluster short story collections and none of them stood out with like, Oh my God, it's a great idea for a story. You know, now eleven twenty two sixty three I think was one of the ones I kind of got back into him 
thought that was a was like wow good ass book good at great book and I was like is this gonna work or not the book really works I don't I don't I don't like James Franco that much so I don't think he's the best choice for the main character but like there's some great stuff in the series too he's an odd choice but I loved Franco as an actor at the time yeah now we can't really enjoy his stuff because he's a total fucking creep yeah. thanks a lot James. But yeah, I was actually a big Franco defender and liked the miniseries 112263 and like but that's the common complaint or people couldn't get over Franco just being in the lead, but yeah. the rest is a pretty faithful adaptation. Yeah, good good budget behind it. Yeah, it looks great cuz that's JJ mm-hmm. producing it again. But then I do want to talk about before we kind of wrap up and get to questions, one of the other things is that like and it starts kind of with our boy like reclaiming King and that's with Mike Flanagan doing Gerald's game for Netflix. But it is interesting to me that a lot of King adaptations now just go straight to Netflix. Gerald's game, 1922 in the tall grass. grass. Um, And even like, what's the Hulu series? Mr. Mercedes is now going. It was originally on something else. Direct TV, I think. Epics or something like that. Yeah. Direct TV. I think you're right. Yeah. But it's all, there's a parallel here to the stuff that was being released in the 90s is that they were a lot like programmers and shelf stuffers for like video stores. And that's where like a lot of our fascination and other people from our generation's fascination kind of cropped up with King's like movie work. We're watching it on cable, renting it at the video store. Like it kind of had a totally separate life outside of the theaters. And like, I wonder if his stuff being, and particularly his like smaller stories and lesser known stuff being adapted for Netflix now really kind of keeps with the, the lineage, let's say of his work, because like, it's perfect for that. It's perfect. Like 1922 is perfect to make, you know, a Tom Jane starring, you know, streaming shelf stuffer for Netflix. That's 90 minutes long. And is basically like his telltale heart and you'll watch it while you fold laundry. And then yeah. you'll never think about it again. Same for in the tall grass, which I like a little more because that's Vicenzo Natale who directs yeah. that. But again, have Patrick Wilson come like lose his mind in a surreal, like cornfield, try to murder people. And it's like a weird, like maze. Sure. I'll like drink coffee and read the paper while that's on in the background in the future. Like it just, it's totally fitting. But then Flanagan is making actual cinema out of King's work again, because I rewatched Gerald's game for the first time since fantastic fest to do homework uh, for this podcast. That movie fucking rips. Like it's one of Flanagan's best films. And that's already saying something because I think most of his work is pitch perfect. Well, that, I mean, that's a hard one to adapt, you know, and I think it's very much in, obviously in line with misery of how to do a one location. Well, Dolores Claiborne. It's that, all about that yeah. familial trauma coming back to haunt you. Oh, it's, it's the all exact the same thing. Yeah, almost the exact same story. And it's Henry Thomas. Ugh, and like, both during Eclipse. The reg- exactly. Both during Eclipse. Yeah. And like it's, it's almost the same exact story. But here you have the Flanagan players playing it out. Oh yeah, because no, I I love Gerald's game, and you know his. I think he also Flanagan just understands again like the temperament of King, you know, and he can balance the like somewhat cheesiness with. Um, He's the master at adapting the bad book into a good movie because he even retains 
what many people think to be the Achilles heel of Gerald's game, the book, which is the fucking horrible ending. He actually, I think, makes the ending weird and relevant. I love and it. like the last 10 minutes are again his classic Flanagan Coda thing to where like all of a sudden he shifts gears and finds a totally different tone like he does at the very end of uh, Haunting of Bly Manor with that last mm-hmm. uh, episode where it all becomes about like their love while she's basically waiting to die the whole time. It becomes that final like reveal at the end of Haunting of Hill House where it's not about like a destructive ghost or anything. It's about people coming together in like a room. And then like even Midnight Mass you know, has that amazing post-apocalyptic coda about people realizing that their faith won't be rewarded one way or another and, like, praying together and everything. And it's just, he, he's such a tremendous filmmaker. I mean, um, his other adaptation, Dr. Sleep, bad book, great fucking movie, great fucking three-hour movie that shouldn't work at all, and I hate it on the page. But again, he finds these pockets of like humanity and like, like weird, almost syrupy poetry in it that like, I find it, it's like my crack cocaine, like put it in my pipe all night long and I will smoke it, Mike. Yeah. And compare, think about a Flanagan movie and watch it next to Dreamcatcher, right? Also a bad book and a really bad adaptation because I mean, the things I think we both probably hate the most, it seems like. Are the, are the friends, too, besides Duddits. The way they all talk to one another is like King at his worst. It's the, it's basically, if you're like, hey, write a parody of the most annoying things about Stephen King. This is how guys talk. And it's that. And it's, the, and it's just like so... It's just dude talk. It's And it's so unrealistic. It's like so far from... Fuck a duck, that's what you would say. horrible. And you look at like, Flanagan, again, is able to take some uneven books. I, and I like the book of Dr. Sleep more than you do, I know, but able to take these uneven books and really shape them in like William Goldman, I think did for these films sure. as well. Like he just got, he got the sensibility. He knew how to like also turn it into a three X structure, you know, with, with some like narrative force, you know? Um, and if you don't want that, you can watch the miniseries. I mean, again, I like storm of the century. I like the meandering nature of it. I'm glad it's four and a half hours long because you really get to like, just kind of hang out in that world with those people. I remember seeing Dr. Sleep at the press screening in like 2019 or whatever it was. And when the credit came up edited by Mike Flanagan, I like lost my fucking mind. I was like, he edited that fucking movie too? Yeah. Is there anything this guy can't do? No, he's he's so fucking talented. And I, I, you know, Mike, we wish you all the success in the world. I mean, he made the best Stephen King adaptation that's not an actual book in Midnight Mass. Yeah. Like Midnight Mass is the greatest Stephen King movie that he just didn't write. And it <laughs> like I've watched it now four times straight through and I've actually gotten the itch to where I'm like, is it midnight mass time this year already? Because we're doing it. I'm only done two. So it's time for me to do number three. I can't make it through without becoming a complete emotional mess oh, the whole time. Yes. Also Hamish Linklater, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen, like just, completely knocks that anyway we've done a whole two-hour podcast on that in the past so you can listen to that um do we have anything else you want to comment on before we get to questions no i mean i guess we you know really uh veered away from silver bullet pretty quickly you know but i do think that what we talked about is evident in that movie i think a lot of things that king's interested in the things that work about king 
um, are all present there. And that is one of those few films that I, I think his words work on the screen. Um, and I think that is a testament to those actors too. I mean, having like someone like Gary Busey really be the most uh, irresponsible uncle in the history of cinematic uncles. Yeah, I mean, it's like, hey, can you make me a bullet? Sure. He gave a kid in a wheelchair, a motorized dirt bike wheelchair, and then gave him fireworks on the same day. And was like, don't tell your parents. It's like, imagine you were that kid's dad and like you found that out. You'd be like, hey, uh, Uncle Ted, can we... I'm going to go talk to you around by the shed real quick. We just, we need to have a chat as men. It, it is one of those movies that it, it plays a lot differently when you're younger versus when you're older. Cause when you're younger, yeah. you're the kid. You're like, Oh man, I want uncle That's, red. I wish I was handicapped, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, no, it seems this like, it's like the Goonies. It's very much this like wish fulfillment for us. I want to just hang out in the summer and fight werewolves with my uncle and my sister. And it helps that it's Corey Haim too. In he's the time so when he's charming in it. Corey. He's really charming. This the sister's really great, and um, I just didn't want to move to questions without saying. I mean, that's, that was the point of the, of the episode. But I think that Silver Bullet is also a great to be jumping off point for non King fans. If you have a person in your life who doesn't know Stephen King, it's like you kind of want to get a feel for it. I got a movie to show you. I think you might like it. You know? Yeah, and like Cujo, it's again a movie where like it feels. Almost like the horror is secondary to yep. where it's it's just this small town, almost community theater level like melodrama where like dudes get into bar fights because the constable isn't doing his job and like Terry O'Quinn is up for re-election and then um, there's that that small town romance where the woman's getting pregnant and she tries to kill herself and the werewolf like comes in and murders her. There's the old uh, Lawrence Tierney out of fucking nowhere, getting beaten to death by his own bat. The the, peacemaker owner there (laughs) in the town. It's just, it's crazy. It, it, it almost feels like, like this strange, like Sam Shepard production that just happens to feature a werewolf. I think, well, and I'm a huge Sam Shepard fan, so it makes sense that <laughs> this is, like, right up my alley, you know? Also, what, like, one of the crazy, like, craziest, like, creature effects of all time, the Carlo Rombaldi, like, werewolf effects are fucking awesome. And it's clearly a guy in the suit the entire time, but you still love it. Um, and, like, that... that reverse transformation at the end after he gets shot is so fucking cool. The score is like super Pino Dinaggio. Yeah. Really high again, but I still don't understand the narration for one second. I did Marty die. I I think Marty's dead. I think he's dead. Um, and yeah, there's, um, you know, speaking of real quick, Carlo Rambali too, he did the special effects for cat's eye, which I watched last night and the entire end scene of the like the basically the the bed the cat troll, versus the the bed troll they're, is so fucking awesome. I don't know how they did half of it for real. I know they had to build giant sets. Probably it is some of the best special effects. Seriously, I've ever seen in a movie. I was sitting there like, wait, what? Well, it's invisible. And then you compound it with the fact that they got a performance from an actual cat. Yeah. Like I don't know how they got that cat to act with that little goblin puppet. It's well, and it's a it's a guy in a suit. 
a lot oh. of it. Like if you look at a lot is of the it white- all like forced perspective type stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's forced perspective and full on. There's a couple scenes they built a giant set. Like he's next to a giant table leg because it looks like it's the movement is is and so they brought different. in a giant cat. Well, it's, <laughs> well, it's that's they did a lot of uh, composite work, but it's like that's that movie and also um, the entire second sequence where. Um, the guy has to walk around the side of the building. These oh, amazing yeah. map paintings of like, I guess it's Atlantic City, and it's fucking terrifying. Like just like being on the side of the the building and trying to walk around. It's like, woof. Cat's Eye is severely underrated. I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that it's great, but like when you're watching it, it rips. Well, and that's what's cool about it too is that was when King was like. He was a household name at that point, like actually a household name. And so there's, like, there's all these like jokes at the beginning about like you see Cujo, they almost get hit by the pont by the uh, the Plymouth Fury from Christine. The the mom is reading yeah. Pet Cemetery in bed. It's, it's almost, almost like- a creep showy intro. Yes, yes. You know, and it is. It's weird though, uh, not to get on too far of a tangent, but it is the first, perhaps like cinematic recognition of King's fame to the point to where it hints at like an interconnected universe, you know, and maybe it's like since IP wasn't the thing that it obviously is now where everything is derivative of some old IP, like it feels like the active acknowledgement of like Stephen King is a brand name now. Like we are, bringing you the thing that you already love just through a different medium. Yeah, there's assumptions made about the audience's knowledge of exactly. King. They're like, you are, you know who this guy is. and we're You know that jokes. this St. Bernard's Cujo, man. Yeah. So you ready to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. Questions about 1985's Silver Bullet. Martin, top three king. Hit me. Top three king adaptations, right? I don't give a fuck. Anything Stephen King. Oh, shit. I'm going to do, let's do adaptations. Okay. Um, um, number one is actually Stand By Me. Um, that's not actually, it's fucking amazing. Uh, Debatable. <laughs> It's not debatable. Uh, it's one of those films that I think like is so interlocked with like my history. And like, I think of my friends every time I watch it and like friends who've passed away. Um, and I think that it really captures that kind of like nostalgic Stephen King sentiment of like, kind of like almost a Bob Seger song, like looking back at your life and not knowing John Cougar Mellencamp. I, I think of Springsteen and Seeger all the time when I read who I also love. It's like, 
that feeling of like, man, like my, my childhood will never come back again, that freedom, but also like people are dead. And I think Stand By Me captures that like, that feeling of like I never had friends like I had when I was 12. Jesus does anybody. And that movie is like my field of dreams for some dudes. I cry like a fucking baby every time I watch it. Richard Dreyfuss in the car, just feeling really sad. <laughs> Think about his friends, and he's be really bad. My friend got stabbed in the throat inside the fast food restaurant. Yep. My man died <laughs> over a plate of fried chicken. <laughs> I got leeches on my penis. <laughs> Chris stole the milk money, and he feels really bad. But a teacher bought that brown dress with the polka dots. <laughs> we apologize to the listening audience. I'm sorry to all of the John Cougar Mellon Camp fans out there. And Stephen King fans. But our that had to be our rendition of, of Stand By Me had to be done. So anyway, so number two. Uh, number two is Silver Bullet. Um, this, again, is a secret handshake for me and many, many people. Bold. Um, and we're talking favorite, so yeah, definitely in terms of what I watched the most. And then number three, I'm going to go with Misery. I think Misery is absolutely perfect. Um, no Shawshank? Definitely not Shawshank. Um, <laughs> but Misery, I think, is just a perfect little thriller. Like you said, got a nice chamber piece. The Goldman script is, like, amazing. We forgot to mention Richard Farnsworth in one of the most, like, oh, yeah. king characters on screen as well with his wife and their little kind of backwards bickering that kind of back and forth. It's like so great, like really great. And Goldman like gets it and Reiner knows how to direct it. And like, like you said, James Kahn, I think in one of his best performances period. And I don't think, I mean, Kathy Bates is a lot in the movie, but like talk about like cinema that will go down in history. People, sure. it's like the level of Jack Torrance of like, as a really great horror villain. Um, how about for you? So number three is Creep Show. Oh, awesome! The first George Romero Stephen King collaboration. Uh, it even features Stephen King in some of his hammiest acting. Jordy Verrill. Yeah, because we didn't even cover how King like shows up in almost all of the movies that are made about his, out of his books, and at least a cameo. You know, he's like the the preacher in Pet Cemetery over Gage's funeral. He's the pharmacist in Thinner I was watching today. You know, that has to basically testify after the, the gypsy is run yep. over by the lawyer. Like TV preacher in Storm of the Century. TV too. preacher in Storm of the Century. But Jody Verrill is one of the few times where he actually gets like a full-on role for better or worse, like there's probably a reason that he didn't have more dialogue as the movies went on. Cause he's not, you know, he's not a thespian. He's no. a writer. Yeah. It's kind of perfect for that role though. I think it's yeah. him. Like I'm going to Real write mugging. this, write this part. And I'm going to play it. Like I'm going to go all the way with it. And he was probably so high. Oh my God. His eyes when he's, he looks like, like that maximum overdrive trailer. Yeah. He's just, just like bugging Whoa. out. Uh, number two, I would probably go with The Mist. Okay. Um, I just love how nihilistic and gnarly it is. I love how it's that, that run-and-gun shooting. Uh, again, Marcia Gay Harden as the, the villain in the supermarket is fucking great. The The creatures are fucking great. Um, Thomas Jane's really, really good. Andre Brower's great. It's just a solid adaptation of one of my favorite stories that I agree with King and Darabont that I think Darabont's ending 
however depressing and bleak it is, is better than the, the book's ending. Though the book's ending, the, the short story's ending, I should say, in Skeleton Crew is pretty fucking good too. Just one of my favorite passages is them driving off into the mist together and like that thing stepping over them, that huge Lovecraftian beast and that the novella more or less just ends with them driving into an endless night Mm. and like we don't know what's going to happen to them where the mist gives you a very Twilight Zone-y, ironic kind of stamp that's horrible too it's well it's very similar to the the story is very similar to the ending of salem's lot where um where mark and ben mears are like they've killed they've killed bonnie bedelia's character susan but it's like they're still after us well we got to keep going this idea we're just going to keep running like we're basically trying to stay two steps ahead of the vampire for the rest of our fucking lives so it's like we won but they're always (laughs) going to be hunting yeah exactly my number one was tough because I'm stuck between two of my favorite filmmakers of all time, frankly. Um, I think my brain wants De Palma and Carrie because mm-hmm. I still think it's almost demonstrably the best movie yeah. oh, of all of them still, even counting The Shining and everything. Like I would put the, some of the technical accomplishments and carry even above like the steady cam work in the shining, like that fucking split screen, like Holocaust at the end. Is it's fucking amazing. Um, but Salem's lot is ultimately going to be my pick for the best because it's just, I've watched it so many times from VHS on it's stuck with me the longest. I think it's the most faithful, adaptation of all of his books but yet still feels like straight up a mean-spirited toby hooper movie the creature design for the the master the the, that kind of nosferatu as vampire is great james mason is great it's just a really good fucking miniseries and again it's integral to the rest of stephen king's kind of cinematic career because it showed that that long or longer format, let's say, was possibly more suitable than even a feature film for adapting his work. Well, and it, I was thinking about, we didn't really talk about this during the first section, but that TV movies are also a much more democratic way to present content because, yeah. like, you you know, before streaming and everything, that was a way you could guarantee that pretty much everyone was going to be home on a Sunday night to watch NBC. Or, or ABC, whatever channel it was on, right? So it was a way to really get King's stuff out to the masses. And he is that kind of writer where it's for everyone. It's not about even needing to get a babysitter. And I mean, every time his miniseries would come out, man, we would, like you said, you tape the stand. Like, it was a big deal. You'd see commercials weeks ahead of time. Yeah, like there were sh- events. Set, set your calendar, you know, Sunday night, or a three-night Stephen King. Like, I had, like, I had programmed for three nights in a row, Storm of the Century. I was like, I'm not going to miss a fucking minute of that show, you know, of that miniseries. And so I do, I do miss that, that side of, um, the water cooler element of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's also the, the part one, part two, part three, which is different than a, a series. It's more like, no, we all know we're going to be done on Tuesday, but we all know where you were last night and it wasn't on your DVR and it wasn't on Netflix. It was like, <laughs> we were sitting there with the fucking Buffalo chicken dip on a Sunday night watching the Stephen King stories. 
Yeah. You know? Even if they were, his adaptation of The Shining was Steven Weber. I did that too, you know? Same. Yeah. So. Remake. And I think the way I'm going to word this, if it's, if, it's, if it's cool for you, is would you redo any of the adaptations that have already been done? Um, or would you choose uh, a, something you've read that has not been adapted yet and do it, you know? You know who I'd love to see? And this isn't me doing a bit though it'll feel like it. Um, I'd love to see Todd Field adapt one of King's, like, older works. Like, honestly, like, make the Dead Zone, Mm. but do, like, Todd Field's version of the Dead Zone, where, again, it takes place in Maine, um, where he lives. Uh, It has that kind of homebound texture. But I'd like something that maybe even skews a little closer to the book. Or, or gives us that same kind of tragic, small-town, melodramatic feeling that Cronenberg's... Well, it still has it. it. It is very much a Cronenberg movie. Like, I'd see... I'd love to see what Todd Field could do with, like, any of King's, like, best iconic pulp. I love that. My, my first answer would be one that's already <laughs> being done, which is Brian Fuller doing Christine. Um, which I need yesterday. Yeah, I can't uh, believe that's a real thing. I'm just like when I, I think you're the one who messaged me about it, and we we're both just like, like there's a god, like this is so perfect. The car is gay. Yeah, <laughs> but like that's that's actually one of my favorite books as well because, um, it's super meandering, but the 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 book sucks. I I love the book, and uh, and you're wrong, but you know we're, <laughs> but there's. There's one scene in particular in the book that I would love to see on the screen, which is when Christine, with Arnie inside, Arnie goes to Darnell's house and literally drives through it. Like, takes this house apart, like, from the foundations up, and the whole thing topples down. Like, I would love to see that on screen, and I hope that they had the money to do that. But I would probably adapt and have a certain filmmaker adapt Ritual, which I believe is 2011 or 12? No, I remember 2014. Um, have you read Ritual? Yes. Um, so that's probably my favorite new king in mean, this later era of him. Um, Revival's mine. Uh, sorry, that's what I meant. Did I, did I say Ritual? Did I say Ritual? Yeah, you kept saying Ritual. Okay, sorry. I'm starting over. I would do uh, an adaptation of something that's not been adapted yet, and that would be Revival. Um, and Todd Fields revival. That would I mean, honestly with all the church stuff, I could totally see Kinda, that. Yeah. Um, but I, the filmmaker that I have wanted to work with King, I know it's come close before is fucking Spielberg. I think that they have a similar sensibility, um, of like their view of like small town America of like children in peril, uh, nostalgia and, I think that would be the one for him to do because that's a book that really gets into like some schmal- some schmaltzy stuff later on with when he becomes an adult. Um, but I also think that Spielberg can have a lot of fun with the horror elements that are in that. And I think that I, the great idea of like this guy is finding a way to peer behind the veil. Um, I would very much love to see that. Honestly, and I do know that Spielberg is attached to help with the talisman for Netflix, um, the Duffer brothers adaptation. Yeah. So that could be, if he, I'm not sure he's probably not directing, but that's also a project I could see him doing well with too. 
Greg Iraqis. Oh, God. The library policeman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Eli, Eli Roth's rage. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'd probably actually watch that movie. Yeah. Double feature. I would do... Um, so a non-king with a king, um, I would do Cujo with Razorback, the Russell Mulcahy film, because there's so many overlaps with the way it's shot and these this, these like technicolor like fever dreams. I also think the way that like it feels like they're on an island out there uh, at the at the garage and out in front of the house and this beast. With Razorback, it's more like a Jaws side. It's just bigger than than life. But all it is is a Saint Bernard with rabies, you know, in um, in the film of Cujo, just covered in blood and snot. Oh, and the pus coming out of his eyes, Ugh. that green slime. It's Fucking really gross. revolting. Um, but I would I would probably do those two together. It's one of my favorite monster movies as well. Is Razorback, and I think that'd be a great like creature feature double. I also think like Tremors would play well with pretty much any of the King. Uh, that's also very Stephen Kingy of that small town. That's oh like, yeah, that's like, kind of something he would write. So that's who. How about you? I'd probably do like an off kilter kind of psychosexual thing where I'd love to play sleepwalkers with an unknowing like audience and do. Something really perverse and gaudy immediately after, like Poison Ivy or oh, like... Oh, yeah. You know, one of the the real, like, Skidamaxi kind of erotic thriller. Embrace of the Vampire. Embrace of the Vampire would be great. Yeah, yeah, something like that, exactly, where you're just like, they're sort of porny, they're sort of campy, and you're just into it the whole time, and everybody's sort of losing their minds. Oh, yeah, I love or, that. Or, like, what if you did Sleepwalkers with... Cat people. Ooh, yeah. And I love cat people. Like, I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, what a day that would be. Oh, that would be. Sexy cat stuff. I love sexy cat stuff. And both are about incest, too. Yeah. They're both, like, they both deal with that. They're very uncomfortable. Yep. Um, cat people even more so than Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers is funny. Cat people is another... Paul's working some stuff out. Yeah, you're like, you're like, oh, is this what you think about? I think you do. Ew. Yeah. You I think you got issues, Paul. No, I, I love that. You know, there's so many there's so many films I think will pair with a King movie too because he has such a wide, you know, a wide uh filmography right. yeah. of just like what he's interested in. You could kind of go, you know, funny or you could go darker, you could go off of any of his monsters, you know. Original idea was to do werewolf movies this episode, you know, like there's a lot of ways you could kind of Go. Last but not least, face melter. Yay, nay. For a silver bullet? Yeah. I'm gonna say yay. Um I think Really? Yeah. Um just because of me having shown it to people, just like their reactions of it's it's on the line. Um it's not a it's not a hard target. You know, I'll say No, it is not. You know I um, would go that this is not a face melter at all. Like I think we're that's it's true, a nostalgia yeah. bomb. Like yeah. it's one of those that takes us back to the time when we first saw this movie. It's hard and, to separate from me, maybe. Yeah, but you know like, what I mean? Like, I don't see this as a thing that like 
blew my brain up or changed the way that I watch movies. It's just a great like Sunday afternoon matinee horror film. Yeah. It almost like it honestly could be in the same grouping as like Goonies, which I think is a great movie, but like how much of that is nostalgia, you know, versus it being well, first insanely... off, Goonies is bad. I'm not a fan, honestly. I've grown yeah. to not like it as much. Yeah. You ch- you did a 180 on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martin, this has been great. Indeed, sir. Uh, we got to run down almost the entire gambit of Stephen King movies. What do we have next for him? Uh, we're going back to the old, the old boob tube TV. No. Oh. Oh, we're doing we're doing sick next, right? I am. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought I forgot we we're doing. We are um, getting back into slasher territory. Our favorite place, one of one of our favorite places to be, and we got to do at least one per season with one of our favorite filmmakers too. Yes, absolutely. But you'll have to tune in next time to Secret Handshake to see which one it is. Stay tuned. See you then. <laughs> See